Well, thank you for that exceedingly kind introduction. Um, the title of my talk today is Africa versus the ICC, the strategy of regionalizing international criminal justice in the African Union and the East African community. And just to give you an overview of what I'll discuss, I'm going to be talking about the overarching institutional dynamics of Africa-ICC relations. And sorry, specifically, African states' institutional strategies uh, to address their opposition of the ICC. So to do that, first I'm going to cover you know, what's significant about the ICC, focusing on how it's an, the only permanent international criminal court. Then I'll discuss how African states' attitudes have shifted from initially supporting the ICC to increasingly opposing it. Then I'll talk about African states' failed strategies for both working within the ICC and trying to change it to address their dissatisfaction <coughs> with it. And finally, I'll look at where they turn as a last resort, pursuing proposals for regional criminal courts within Africa. And there were two such proposals. One was within the African Union, and this is a continental-wide body, regional organization of African states. And this proposal was ultimately adopted as a treaty. And then there is another proposal within the East African community. And this is a small sub-regional organization of just five states within East Africa. And they ultimately abandoned their proposal. So first, the ICC. The ICC was a sort of significant moment. Its creation uh, was a significant development within the international criminal legal regime. So previously, the regime had relied on practices such as national courts exercising universal jurisdiction, and this was highly <coughs> contested, especially amongst African states, as many European national courts had indicted and prosecuted African leaders, for example. And of course, there was a sort of repeated creation of various ad hoc institutions, so hybrid courts, international criminal tribunals, for instance, for Rwanda and Yugoslavia, but the ICC, as a permanent international criminal court, changed all that. So it was the first one, um, and it sort of created a standing body that could prosecute in, uh, international crimes at the international level. So the <coughs> ICC, within its member states, can intervene based on the principle of complementarity. Um, so states can refer situations to the ICC, the Office of the Prosecutor can exercise its, its proprio motu power to uh, conduct investigations within ICC states' parties. But even beyond the ICC's membership, uh, it can potentially intervene. So under the UN Security Council, it can use its discretion to refer situations to the ICC amongst, amongst its non-member states. So initially, there's pretty strong African support for the ICC. This didn't happen overnight. Um, during the Rome negotiations, it took a little persuasion from civil society organizations and also a sub-regional block of African states in the Southern African Development Community to persuade the wider body, the wider African block of states to accept the draft Rome Statute. And so this acceptance was really instrumental to the Rome Statute's ultimate adoption. Other signs of support <coughs> involved the ratifications of the Rome Statute. So the ICC is the largest, um, sorry, the African group is the largest group, uh, regional grouping of states within the ICC's membership. Um, Senegal gave the first ratification of the Rome Statute. The DRC gave the 60th ratification. 
for the Rome Statute to enter into force, and in total there's 34 um, African ICC member states. Once the court became operational, um, there was further indications of support for the ICC. So its first cases came from state referrals from African states, so Uganda, the DRC, uh, through close cooperation with the Office of the Prosecutor in the ICC, referred um, situations to it. So, where does it all go wrong? Um, there's particular turning points um, in Africa's ICC relations. One key one is the indictment of Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir uh, in 2008, and then there's an arrest warrant for uh, Bashir issued in 2009. And this, this case comes to the ICC through a very controversial UN Security Council referral. And so Bashir is a currently sitting head of state within Africa, so this draws kind of widespread condemnation from African leaders and African states, especially within the African Union. Another controversial case, it comes in 2010 when Kenya, um, the Kenya investigation is opened by the Office of the Prosecutor using its proprio motu power. So this isn't a state referral, it's the uh, ICC intervening um, on its own. And this ultimately leads to indictments for Uhuru Kenyatta and William Ruto, who be later become president, deputy president of Kenya. So more African leaders are being targeted. Then in 2011, there's also an arrest warrant issued for Colonel Gaddafi, the Libyan leader. Um, so, Another UN Security Council referral, another African head of state being prosecuted. So there's those specific incidents, but then there's also the sort of broader perception that the ICC's investigations and prosecutions are targeting Africa, and particularly African leaders. Um, so there's this perception of bias, which leads to political cartoons such as this. Mm -hmm. Um, so it says the most wanted by the ICC is from Africa again, and the pictures of a man semi-blindfolded peeking out and doing the selection process. So this is getting at that question of bias. So African critiques of the ICC sort of center on political issues and legal issues. Um, some political critiques include, as I mentioned, the targeting of Africa, this perception of neo-colonialism, um, the misusing of indictments against African leaders, for instance, for regime change, and disrupting peace processes. So you have, for instance, Rwandan President Paul Kagame saying that the ICC has been in place only for African countries. Uh, the Ethiopian Foreign Minister saying the court has transformed itself into a political instrument targeting Africa. But the, as the ICC is a legal institution, there were also legal critiques. So Kenyan president, the indicted Kenyan president, Uhuru Kenyatta, said that with the Kenyan cases came a progressive breaching of the Rome Statute's critical cornerstones of complementarity, admissibility, threshold, and gravity. So amid this rising opposition to the ICC, the question was, how would African states address their dissatisfaction with it? So there are 34 African states parties to the ICC, and they obviously joined, uh, they obviously joined for particular benefits. So there's benefits associated with international prosecution. So when 
national judiciaries are unwilling or unable uh, to prosecute, there can be international prosecutions. So particularly in African states, many of which have weak judiciaries, this, they could, this could provide a benefit. Also, there are sort of efficiency gains over repeatedly creating ad hoc institutions. So having a permanent body that can prosecute crimes at the international level is a valuable thing. But many African states, both members and non-members <coughs> of the court, were contesting the way that the ICC was going about uh, implementing this mandate. But they were sort of stuck. The ICC was the only permanent international criminal court available to them. So to understand African state strategies at the institutional level, um, I'm just going to quickly go over an international relations theory that's relevant for mapping out their strategies. And I realize this is a multidisciplinary audience, so I'll um, just do it very briefly. So institutional choice theory explains African states' series of institutional strategies to address their opposition with the ICC. So the theory predicts that when states are dissatisfied with an existing institution, they'll evaluate a sequence of potential institutional strategies. So first, they'll consider whether they can use the institution to address their dissatisfaction. Then they'll consider changing the institution. And finally, as a last resort, they may consider creating an alternative institution. And these decision-making processes follow a sequential logic. So they evaluate these, these options sequentially. So they first exhaust the least costly, difficult, and uncertain options available to them. And obviously, using an existing institution is the easiest, it's available. Um, changing an institution is more costly, you have to sort of make a proposal for change, negotiate amendments. Um, you might not get the amendments you want when you sort of negotiate with the broader membership of the institution. Um, also, it's uncertain how the changes will actually work out in practice. But most, the most costly, difficult, and uncertain strategy is creating an alternative institution. So you have to negotiate the treaty, you have to actually operate a new institution, um, it's difficult to have the expertise to create one, and it's also uncertain how this new institution will operate in the international system. So, IR theory done. Um, so, African states, we see that African states increasingly consider these costly, difficult, and uncertain strategies over time. So they shifted from emphasizing using the ICC to address their dissatisfaction, to changing the ICC, to creating an alternative to the ICC. So first they started trying to work within the ICC to address their concerns. So this involved using the ICC's existing rules and procedures to undermine its interventions within Africa. So Article 19 of the Rome Statute governs the admissibility of cases at the ICC, and also Article 17 relates to the complementarity between national courts and the International Criminal Court. So basically, Kenya and Libya tried to use uh, domestic trials as a means of blocking ICC interventions. So they were making the claim that they were pursuing domestic proceedings, and so the cases should be rendered inadmissible at the ICC. And this was mostly unsuccessful. Only one case, um, in only one case, the ICC judges accept this admissibility challenge. So 
African states also used Article 16 of the Rome Statute, which pertains to deferrals, so deferring cases for one year, and the UN Security Council could do this um, under its authority and in the interests of international peace and security. And so the AU in Kenya, for instance, made deferral requests uh, for ICC cases against Africans, and this basically, uh, these requests fell on deaf ears. So the UN Security Council was very slow to respond, and this actually sort of furthered tensions between Africa and the ICC because they felt like they weren't even being heard or acknowledged. Another strategy of working within the ICC is to use its reliance on state cooperation against it, so to undermine its investigation. So African states pursued a strategy of non-cooperation. And this really traces back to some AU decisions um, where they ordered African states or <coughs> urged African states not to cooperate to arrest uh, the Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir, um, and not to cooperate with that case in general. Um, Obviously, Bashir continues to evade arrest. Most recently, South Africa um, didn't arrest him last year. Um, also, Kenya um, pursued a strategy of non-cooperation with the ICC and actively undermining its cases. Um, and this was, was sort of uh, rendered moderate results for, for Kenya. Uh, the, the charges against Uhuru Kenyatta, or the case against Uhuru Kenyatta was ultimately dropped, um, and, but the other cases persisted. So these strategies weren't that effective for African states. And they were also quite narrowly focused, targeted to particular cases, and quite reactive. So um, African states also consider just abandoning international criminal justice through a permanent institution, so they consider exercising their right under Article 127 of the Rome Statute to withdraw from the ICC. And this occurs in October 2013. There's a huge debate within the African Union about whether to withdraw. And ultimately, they decide against it. Uh, they don't want to completely abandon um, prosecuting international crimes at the international level through a permanent inst international institution. Um, but instead, they resolve to seek change at the ICC. So we see that emphasis shift towards institutional change strategies. But, I mean, there were earlier sort of minor attempts at changes. Um, so the AU, for instance, backed a proposal um, for amending Article 16 regarding deferrals so that if the UN Security Council didn't give an answer to a refer deferral request within six months, it could go to the UN General Assembly. So this was a fairly minor point. But towards the end of 2013, after this um, debate on withdrawal, African states start to demand uh, change at the ICC more, far more aggressively. So um, a month later in November at the Assembly of States Parties, uh, Kenya pre presents several proposals for amendments. Um, at the AU's request, there's a special session held to debate uh, the immunity of sitting heads of state and government. And so there's a proposal to have an amendment um, to allow for this immunity. But what passes in the Assembly of States parties, which is over 120 ICC members, member states, only 34 of which are African, um, is a sort of watered-down amendment. So there's a, um, a 
amendment to the rules of procedure and evidence allowing um, ICC judges to basically, at their discretion, excuse senior officials from presence at trial. But this, you know, is completely at ICC, um, ICC judges' discretion, and it isn't applied in the Kenyan cases, which is the key objective. So basically, institutional change strategies also prove ineffective at addressing African states' uh, contestation of the ICC. So given these unviable strategies of working within the ICC or seeking change at the ICC, they only secure kind of minor concessions for African states, but the overarching issue of the ICC being able to intervene in African states, prosecute African leaders, and so on, those issues persist. So because of these, these issues, African states turn to their last resort, according to these different institutional strategies. They start to pursue these proposals to create institutional alternatives to the ICC at the regional level. So the idea is that a regional institution could potentially block ICC intervention. So going back to this principle of complementarity and admissibility challenges, <coughs> if a national court were unwilling or unable to prosecute cases, <coughs> then a regional court within Africa could prosecute these cases and provide another layer of protection or justice that would block ICC intervention. Um, so there's two ways this could play out. Within ICC member states, it would block um, the ICC's intervention. Um, and amongst non-member states, they would just be members of this regional court. And potentially non-ICC member states could join it as well. Also, a regional institution could pro provide additional benefits. So you could have more local justice. So in international criminal trials to promote reconciliation, uh, it's important to have a connection with the, the affected communities. So African states could also have a more local court um, at the regional level. Also, with a new institution, there's a, the potential to institutionalize new norms. So there could be development of international criminal law through this new institution. So we see two distinct initiatives for regional criminal courts, one within the African Union and another within the East African community. So you've probably heard about this African Union International Crimes Protocol, but what's often not discussed is the, the long history of the idea of a criminal jurisdiction within Africa. So as early as 1981, uh, in the negotiations, negotiations for the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, Guinea proposed having a regional court to prosecute human rights and crimes against humanity. At that time, African states said a court is too premature. Um, but they acknowledged that let's leave the potential, uh, let's leave this open for possibly having an additional protocol where such a court could be developed. They start negotiating such a court in the 1990s. And this is in the context of conflicts in Africa, the Rwandan genocide. They're negotiating the protocol for the African Court on Human and People's Rights, which is the currently operational AU court. Um, so in these negotiations, the question of a criminal jurisdiction comes up again. But once again, African states shy away from it. They say, <coughs> not for now. 
comes up again in 2006. Um, and this is in the context of a Belgian national court indicting the former Chadian leader, Hassan Habre. Um, so under universal jurisdiction, they, they wanted to prosecute Hassan Habre. As I mentioned earlier, African states contested this practice of prosecuting African leaders under universal jurisdiction. So the AU commissioned a committee of eminent African jurists to investigate how to deal with this issue. With Habre, they recommend an African state's national courts prosecute him under universal jurisdiction. So that was the short-term solution for that. But in the long term, they also recommend creating a criminal jurisdiction for the African court. So once again, the African Union is considering whether to create a criminal jurisdiction. But admittedly, the African Union only seriously considers this proposal in the context of rising opposition to the ICC. Um, and specifically, it's mentioned in a decision uh, in the wake of the Bashir arrest warrant in July 2009. That's what really prompts this issue getting back on the AU's agenda. So the African Union Commission hires an external consultant, the Pan-African Lawyers Union, which as Daniel mentioned, um, I was based at for a while. Um, and the PALU is supposed to draft a protocol, explore the possibility of a criminal jurisdiction. And this jurisdiction would apply not to the currently operational African Court on Human, Human and People's Rights, but to the future court um, for the AU, uh, the product of a merger between two courts, the African Court of Justice and Human, uh, Human Rights. So, the International Crimes Protocol evolves over time after extensive negotiations. So, the PALU drafts um, sort of span 2010 to 2012. And when Palu was developing this protocol, <coughs> they were really aiming to strengthen African systems. So they were trying to seize upon this sort of moment of political will within the AU to strengthen the African court and create a credible mechanism for prosecuting international crimes within Africa. And obviously, you would need that to support admissibility challenges at the ICC anyway. Um, so the PALU draft largely mirrors the Rome Statute, but there are some changes. Um, for instance, they add 10 additional crimes um, with particular relevance to Africa. So essentially they comb through existing AU treaties relating to human rights or good government, governance or rule of law and draw out crimes that they see as precursors to these larger crimes that are present at the ICC. So a total of 14 crimes, 10 of which they see as regionally specific to Africa. They also, within the protocol, include a broad complementarity clause, but they only explicit, ex explicitly mention African regional courts. They don't talk about the ICC. And this attracted a lot of um, skepticism uh, from observers, but talking to them, this was an intentional strategy of theirs. They didn't want the ICC question to, to be to be debated by African leaders when they were sort of negotiating this protocol. They wanted the protocol to be adopted, create the court, and then African court judges and ICC judges could negotiate the relationship, potentially through a memorandum of understanding. So, the African Union Assembly eventually tables this protocol that Palu has developed for adoption in 2012 
but ultimately they decide not to adopt it. And <laughs> instead, they order further investigations of the financial implications of this jurisdiction. And they also are curious and want further information about how this new crime of unconstitutional change of government is defined. So, um, the, the sort of momentum for this new, for creating this new regional criminal jurisdiction changes after these events at the end of 2013, which I described earlier. So there's the debate on withdrawing from the, the Rome Statute. Then there's the proposals for amendments at the ICC that fail, essentially. And so early in 2014, the AU resolves to fast track the finalization of this draft protocol. So at that moment, they're ready to adopt it, essentially. So they form this specialized tec technical committee on legal and judicial affairs, and that's uh, composed of legal officials from um, different African states, and they meet and make final changes to the protocol before it is finalized. So some key changes result. Um, first, they remove reference to popular uprising within the crime of unconstitutional change of government, so dealing with that un uncertainty about its definition. And then they, of course, make the the change that makes the headlines, um, they introduced an immunity clause. Um, and so the AU's legal counsel explained how it was negotiated. So it started as full immunity for sitting at heads of state and government and senior officials, and then it was negotiated down to immunity while in office. Um, and obviously the immunity clause complicates the ability for a regional jurisdiction to provide prosecutions that would support admissibility challenges at the ICC. Um, so if African states are members of both courts, let's say, then if the regional court doesn't prosecute leaders, the ICC could intervene. If um, African states are only members of the African court, and let's say they withdraw from the ICC and join the African court, then if they don't prosecute leaders, potentially, the UN Security Council could refer a case to the ICC and they could still prosecute the leaders. So this, it's, it's complex, but essentially the African court with the criminal jurisdiction could provide um, some protection for um, African heads of state and government and senior officials. So the AU <laughs> negotiates this in May, adopts it in June. So it's very rapid, this progression. So I'll return to the AU proposal at the end, but first it's also important to consider that the East African community also advanced a proposal, and this hasn't received that much attention, but it's still interesting. Um, so this proposal was largely a reaction to the Kenya cases, uh, a sort of imp impulse reaction, um, and it came from the East African Legislative Assembly, which is essentially a regional parliament uh, within East Africa, and there are representatives from each East African state within it. So they pass a resolution calling for the extension of the, their regional court, the East African Court of Justice, to cover international crimes. And this happens in April 2012. So within the resolution, they criticize the ICC's performance. Um, so talking about its delayed justice, or justice delayed is justice denied, its selectivity of prosecutions, and so on. 
they argue that regional justice is better for reconciliation. And they talk about how the East African Court of Justice, for instance, has sub-registries in each African, East African state. And so it would be more accessible to people in affected communities, potentially. And they also really stress that a sub-regional court could preserve East African independence. And they liken the ICC to the old colonial justice system where um, appeals would go to a court in Britain. So the legacy of colonialism once again appears. So this proposal is clearly oriented towards the Kenya cases because they argue that the jurisdiction should have retroactive effect and they explicitly request that the, the ICC's Kenya suspect should be transferred to the East African Court of Justice. So essentially two days later, the East African Summit, which is the heads of state and government, they endorse this resolution and they call for the secretariat to investigate the possibility. So they draft what they call a comprehensive technical paper, which essentially maps out what, the, uh, what a protocol would look like, and it largely duplicates the Rome Statute. So when states evaluate this proposal, they're pretty divided. Um, so they're very concerned about the East African community's limited uh, resource capacity. They're also concerned about the East African Court of Justice, specifically its resource capacity. So Tanzania, for instance, says that one ICC trial's budget exceeds the whole budget of the East African Court of Justice for a year. So it would be a huge investment. Um, and they're also concerned about diverting resources away from strengthening their domestic judiciaries. Um, and so also a key objective of the proposal, a key benefit that they see is getting the Kenya suspects to be tried more locally. But Kenya, for instance, says that it doubts that the ICC would turn over the Kenya suspects and it's, you know, also Af uh, East African states are questioning What's the real benefit of having a sub-regional court when there's this African Union proposal being advanced? Do we really need a sub-regional mechanism as well? So they conclude, or they, they don't obtain consensus on the proposal, and so instead they decide to favor this African uh, Union proposal for extending the African court's jurisdiction to cover international crimes. So they'll have a, an African regional court, just not within their sub-region. So, <coughs> finally, we can return to the African Union's proposal and the prospects for this international <laughs> crimes protocol. So currently, it's adopted, which means that African states can uh, sign and ratify it, and with 15 ratifications, it'll enter into force. But, as I mentioned, this is for the future African court. So that protocol needs 15 ratifications to enter into force. And then the International Crimes Protocol means 15 ratifications. And currently, at least as of early February, there's been reportedly eight signatures of the protocol. And that's in about one and a half years. And this isn't insignificant. Um, if you kind of contextualize it, um, considering that the African Court on Human People's Rights, the one that's currently operational, it took nearly six years for that protocol to enter into force. So, Generally, African states can be quite slow with ratifying <coughs> treaties. <coughs> but we can evaluate the prospects for the, the protocol. And I've mapped out some factors sort of favoring ratifications and working against ratifications. 
So there's still political will um, for this jurisdiction. Uh, for instance, after the protocol was adopted, Kenya made this largely symbolic gesture of pledging $1 million to establish the court. Obviously, this isn't the whole budget, but it was indicating it's backing this um, protocol quite strongly. Also, African states continue to debate withdrawing from the Rome Statute. So last year, for instance, domestically, Namibia and South Africa were debating withdrawal. And earlier this year, uh, the African Union accepted Kenya's proposal for um, having a roadmap for withdrawing from the Rome Statute. Some factors working against, obviously, resources. And this is quite complex um, because African regional organizations are heavily donor funded, uh, but the extent to which they control those funds varies. Um, so the African court specifically is heavily donor funded. Also, um, there's a lot of civil society pressure, both within Africa and from Western-based NGOs, especially considering this immunity clause. So Palu, the drafters of the original uh, protocol, they're still lobbying for its adoption, but they want th that immunity clause revised. And then also, obviously, human rights NGOs that are often part of this coalition for the International Criminal Court, they're campaigning against the protocol as well. So even as an adopted protocol, um, this International Crimes Protocol is still a significant development in Africa-ICC relations because it gives African states um, another option, essentially. The ICC isn't their only permanent international criminal court available to them. So it remains to be seen whether the ratifications come, but it's still um, a huge change in Africa-ICC relations. Thank you.